great to see all y'all this morning. July's kind of weird. July's kind of that time where uh, people are coming and going, and it's vacation season for some, and uh, just different rhythms for pretty much everybody. Uh, currently, our lead pastor, Justin, is coming back from a vacation. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, we're always excited to see the faces that come through in a season like July, because, you know, we need each other. We need you. You need this worship in this place. So seriously, glad that you are here. And if you are going to be gone on a vacation or anything like that, do it to the glory of God, and we hope you're able to find rest during that time. Uh, my family, we just got back from a vacation, actually. It was kind of a last-minute deal where uh, an opportunity arose that we were able to take advantage of. We went to Buena Vista, Colorado, and it was amazing. I mean, it was absolutely, not to like rub it in or anything, but it was beautiful <laughs> up there. And I mean, this this cool vacation town right in the middle of the mountains and all the fresh air and cool things to do, and it's just all right there. And, you know, we were... I mean, it's, it's this town where, where the majority of the people at the time were people from all over the place that had descended upon Buena Vista, and they were all seeking different things. They were, they were pursuing different things uh, in this vacation in Buena Vista. We had some that were looking for adventure, whether through whitewater rafting or, uh, some, or maybe uh, climbing 14,000-foot mountains. Or for others, it was the, they were seeking relaxation with the hot springs or just they were seeking peace by being just in nature, which was right there. People were descending from all over the place, seeking different things. And for my family, uh, we were uh, primarily, what we were seeking and pursuing was a retreat, a family retreat, a time for rest and restoration, to, to reconnect with each other and with God. You know, I recently felt some, some weariness and some heaviness in my own life. And so we knew we needed this time to pursue this time with each other. We found that rest. We also found a little bit of the adventure. I did take the boys whitewater rafting. It was awesome. We did climb a mountain, not a 14,000 footer or whatever, but, uh, um, but we got the adventure too. But we, we were able to, to, to pursue that time intentionally. And so that really was a theme for me, this idea of pursuing God. And that's, you know, the, I was exploring um, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That was a theme verse for me. And so as, you know, as God was really speaking into that in that, uh, in that retreat, that's, that's really what I felt and I knew that I was supposed to, to bring to this time to, that we would have together and share a little bit about what God taught me, which I think is so important for all of us, right? Uh, and so I'm gonna begin by reading a, an article which is um, not from the Bible. It is actually from Forbes magazine, so we're going to start with a, uh, a worldly perspective, if you will, on the things that people pursue in life. The article um, entitled, The Top Eight Things People Desperately Desire But Can't Seem to Attain. I feel like we should play Family Feud, see if you guys can guess it. I bet you'd nail a bunch of them. But we'll just go through the list here. All right. And the very first, well, actually, before we get to the first one, let me give you the intro. I highlighted just a few things. I'm not going to read the whole article, but uh, she points out, she says, what's so intriguing about these responses is that it's becoming more obvious with each passing year that the things we humans desperately long for are not only universal and timeless, but also have become even more elusive and challenging to assess and sustain. 
even as we evolve and develop in this tech-frenzied, time-crushing world, right? As we evolve in technology and like, you know, better highways and better this, better that. I mean, we, things are supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be easier to pursue and attain these things, but that's not happening. The elusiveness of the things we pursue and desire is still a common thread, if not intensified. So the number one item on the list that people pursue is happiness. It is happiness. Um, she goes on to say here, the number one mentioned missing element, happiness, has become so hard to achieve and even harder to maintain. Happiness is constantly out of our control and a perpetual moving target uh, that never stands still long enough for people to grasp. And she mentioned that after pointing out that people are constantly seeking happiness in things like jobs, husbands, wives, families, titles, children, paycheck, fancy house. Happiness is constantly out of control, perpetual moving target. Number two on the list is money, pursuing money. She says, isn't it fascinating that no matter what we earn, we somehow feel we never have enough? The question is, how much money do you really need to bring about the life experiences that will truly fulfill you? How much money would it take to be satisfied? Number three, freedom. Number four, peace. Some good commentary here. We long for peace desperately. Peace from noise, chatter, pressure, responsibilities. We all want peace from the painful thumping inside our heads. The, the conflicts and strain we inflict on ourselves every minute to be better, stronger, smarter, prettier, thinner, better parents, fill in the blank. Peace, I found, doesn't come from being better at anything or even figuring anything out. Attaining peace is a practice that we need to cultivate and commit to. Okay, she's right on that, even though the perspective is off. Regardless of what's going around, peace in today's time will never just fall in our laps. It's too chaotic a world. Number five is joy. Number six is balance. Number seven is fulfillment. We simply can't experience fulfillment if we're not living up to what we know is our highest and best potential. Fulfillment is possible when you are filling up, when you are filling up your cup, honoring your potential, not forsaking yourself by putting everyone else in front of you. Fulfillment comes when you take bold actions that say yes to your future vision of you, even well before it's hatched. If this is not a worldly perspective that is complete opposite of the gospel, I don't know what is. Number eight is confidence. That's the list. As you look at this list, can you relate to any of these? It's okay if you do. I mean, I'd say it's, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's not wrong if you, if you relate and connect to any of these. Matter of fact, I would say that if you do, you're human. The, I think most, not all, but most of these are actual innate human desires that God has put within us. But the problem is our world just has a completely perspective of the proper order of these things in our life and how we go about pursuing and attaining them. Let me read her summary statement here. She says, the reality is that it's a tough world out there. Amen. Yes, it is. With many challenges, we're simply not prepared to face 
But throughout those challenges, there are countless ways we can remain true to ourselves, leverage our gifts, and foster our self-esteem and passion for life and work. And we can continually, continually build our confidence, happiness, and fulfillment despite these challenges. For that, we need an abundance of self-love and also support from others who won't tell us what to do, but instead want to help us follow our own internal value system and beliefs. And we need to believe in ourselves without fail. Believe in ourselves, an abundance of self-love. That's the key to attaining these things we desperately desire. Doesn't this make you sad? Yeah, there you go, thank you. We needed that buzzer, yeah. Thank goodness that Jesus has completely flipped the narrative. Jesus completely reverses this narrative and shows us the better way to flourishing. Sure, yes, a lot of these things are flourishing, but flourishing only happens when we do it the Jesus way and not the way that our flesh and the world says, yes, do what is best for you and your own strength, you know, focused on you first. That's the problem. So this morning I want to, in our pursuit of God, this great pursuit that we're, we're learning about today, we're gonna to explore the Jesus way, and we're gonna do that in Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six, and the, uh, which uh, um, the key verse, I already mentioned seek first the kingdom of God, is Matthew 6.33. Ironically, page, if you have one of the Bibles in, your, in the seats, uh, we're looking at page 633 through 633. Five this morning as we kind of bounce around the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to focus, but I want to start the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. What is the, the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe you've heard this term. You see, when Jesus started his earthly ministry, he, he, went, he went about and he was teaching people about the kingdom of God. And in Matthew, he captures uh, a particular sermon that Jesus gave. It may have been a one-time specific sermon that he recorded here. It may have been a collection of the sayings. He was teaching people the Jesus way. You see, the problem that we have is not new. The problem of, of, of trying to attain all of these things our way instead of God's way, that's what they were dealing with then. And Jesus stood on this mountain and proclaimed the Jesus way. And I love how it starts. It starts what we call the Beatitudes. We're not studying the Beatitudes today, but I want to mention them. That's kind of a fancy word, Beatitudes. And, you know, I could spend time trying to break that, break that down. And it's blessed is this, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. What is this getting at? These are the people that flourish, if you want to flourish in life, if you want to experience the abundant life that I know you guys have been seeking after, let me tell you the Jesus way, the best and only way to flourish, okay? And, and Jesus says, he opened his mouth, I love that, verse two, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Talk about flipping the script, right? Completely opposite of what we just read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These are big terms. These are bigger terms that encompass really all of the things that we saw on the other list. It is the Jesus way is better. Yet why do we run our wheels seeking the other way? So after Jesus starts off by describing, this is what it looks like to be a child of God. This is what it looks like to be, live in my kingdom as I ex, ex, um, extend the rule and re, my rule and reign through the earth and you live in my kingdom. For you to flourish, let's talk about what it means to live as a kingdom citizen. And so he's going to go to great de- de- detail addressing a lot of different areas. A lot of them was talking about, hey, look, that law that I gave you earlier, let me show you the bigger picture of that. And so we're not looking at that today. We're going to jump into Chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, he gave them a specific way to pray. And I love that. He says, and when you pray, um, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, lead us not into temptation. I mean, there's that, that powerful prayer of being a kingdom citizen. And then he's going to talk specifically about what it looks like to seek God first. Now that's in verse 33. I think that that's the big idea of of this whole Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I think that's the big idea. We're gonna build up to the big idea. We're gonna journey through this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Together we're gonna take that journey and we're gonna begin in verse 19. So, Let's begin by looking at verse 19. We're going to read through verse 21 to start. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I'm sorry, do, do that actually. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. There's a lot packed in to these, uh, these powerful verses. The first thing we see is that there's two, two parallel commands, a positive command and a negative command about treasures. Laying up treasures, which ones you are supposed to lay up and which ones you aren't. What does it mean to lay up treasures? Maybe a more accurate term would be store up. By nature, as people, we tend to to store up things. We hold hold on to things. We're hoarders. Maybe not quite as extreme as what we've seen on TV. I've only watched a few seconds of that, and I'm like, I can't even watch this right now. It's making me like all sorts of OCD. But um, we are by nature hoarders. We are laying up treasures on earth, right? Uh, whether we realize it or not, we, we, we cling on to possessions, the possessions of things, experiences, even good things. But Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So what's he telling us to do here? Is he saying we can't have good, nice things? Some, sometimes maybe we should not have nice things, but uh, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not criticizing wealth here, although he gives warnings 
about wealth, and we'll kind of get into that because, I mean, there's a power that wealth can have on you. He's not criticizing having things. If you look through the full counsel of Scripture and Jesus' experience, I mean, yes, he criticized the rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus but was clinging and possessing things to the degree he couldn't let them go to follow Jesus. But at the same time, you've got Joseph of Arimathea who had wealth and it was used for God's glory. And there, there's several others that are honored in scripture, people of wealth who use their wealth for the glory of God. And so it's not inherently bad to have nice things. I've benefited from some of the nice things that some of you guys have in your role. And that is great when it's been using with the right perspective and being used for the glory of God. But what he's saying is do not store up treasures. What's a treasure? Y'all picturing things like pirates and seeking at the box of little Jack Sparrow. And I mean, that's what first comes to mind. But what's, what's a treasure, right? Anything can be a treasure if we ascribe a certain value to it. All right. Let me uh, I'm pull out my, my baseball bat here. Worship team thought I was coming after him earlier when I set this out. No, 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 no. Just a prop. It's just a baseball bat, right? I mean just a piece of wood. I mean, just by having a baseball bat, it's just a thing. It's just a possession. But this one has been in my office for eight years because friends from our last church, because they knew that I am the biggest Texas Rangers fan in the world, uh, they gave me just a little Texas Rangers logo bat. And so this, this is a treasure of mine because there, there's value attributed to it because of where it came from and who it's from. There's, there's relationship behind this, right? So this is much more valuable to me than even if it were like a super thousand dollar bat or whatever, I don't even know if that exists, right? But I've assigned attributed value to this as a treasure. But you know what, that's okay because it doesn't, it's not affecting my life in any such a way. Now, I went to a baseball game once with a guy who was actually uh, leading me in some discipleship stuff. It was kind of weird. Um, and we were going to watch a base, the Texas Rangers play baseball, right? We had seats. We we're going to go watch. It's going to be great. But this guy had a thing for bats. I didn't even know this was a thing. Like, they sell cracked bats in all the, the, uh, the club stores throughout the Texas Rangers Stadium. So you go in there, and you go to the back, and they got these cracked bats. And, you know, so Adrian Beltre used this one, and the other guy used this one, and they were a lot of money. And he was just leading me from one club store to the next, and he was obsessed with these bats. And he already had a bunch at home, and he's wanting to get more. And I know this guy didn't make a lot of money, but he was all about looking at all the cracked bats, so now, this treasure of a nice bat, this was something that was affecting him, right? It was a whole different ballgame than me just appreciating my bat. This guy was consumed by cracked bats, and it was affecting his life, affecting his time. We should have been watching baseball, right? Affecting our relationship, because I really didn't want to have anything to do with him, because he was all about the bats, and clearly it was affecting his bank account. If we're not careful with our treasures, it can, it can lead us down some paths whether we realize it or not. So what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, do not store up treasures on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth, 
nor rust does destroy, and thieves cannot break in and steal. There are treasures that have eternal value and, and do not get destroyed. Now, is this talking about future things? Well, sh- sure, but is it only talking about future things? I think it's very easy to read this, treasures in heaven. Like, this is talking about getting saved and knowing that one day we will have life with God when Jesus returns, and so that's our treasure. It's all future. I don't think this is all future. We're to store up treasures in heaven in the here and now. What makes that heaven even significant. It's the presence of God in heaven. God himself is the treasure. The treasure that Jesus is calling on us to store up in our lives and to be consumed within our lives and to value and to attribute the greatest amount of value to is himself, the presence of God, right? Are you pursuing Jesus as the greatest treasure? Is that the treasure that you are letting consume your life? I know many of you are like, well, yeah, of course, right? I was saved. I'm a Christian, right? And uh, I think it's very easy for us to get complacent with our salvation experiences. We talk about pursuing God, and we're like, yeah, I found God. I have a relationship with him. Well, what does that relationship look look like? Well, back when I was in sixth grade, and I went to Cross Timbers, I walked down the aisle, and I was saved, and I know I'm going to heaven Someday I'm like, okay, so what does that relationship look like now? How are you storing up treasures in heaven now? How are you pursuing that relationship with God now? Well, I'm saved. I go to church and no, no, no. Are you pursuing God? Is he your greatest treasure? It's kind of like the, uh, kind of like the story. Did you hear the story about the boy who fell madly in love with this girl? And then he took her on a date and realized, like, she was the real deal. And then he asked her to marry him. And then he didn't see her for months and months and months and just waited for the wedding day. Did you hear that story? Neither did I because it never happened. (laughs) That's not how relationships work. When you discover the greatest treasure of all and you pursue that treasure, you don't stop pursuing that treasure, right? Are you pursuing God and his presence on a daily basis? You're here, that's a step, but it's not just about coming on Sundays. It's about discovering him through his word and through prayer and being with God and being part of his rule and reign, reaching the others on mission for God. That is storing up treasures and it is so worth it. It is the best treasure. We're gonna continue on and see what else Jesus has to say. Uh, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, pun completely attended, in verse 21, right? For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. There your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Whatever you treasure, there is a direct correlation between, between your greatest treasure and your heart. What is the heart? It's your inner disposition. The heart is being described as like your your central part of your personhood here. This is the heart encompasses all things inside of you, your will, your emotions, the direction in your life, your, your, your values. Everything flows from the heart. The heart is what ties it all together, right? Where your treasure is, is where your heart is. 
We cannot take this lightly. If we start, if we go to the doctor and we start talking about heart things, y'all know that it is serious and we got to make life changes if the doctor says, you know what, your heart is not good. You're going to make immediate changes in your life, right? It's going to get your attention. Guys, one of the biggest problems in the church is we have very complacent hearts where we are settling for treasures that not only do not satisfy, but they are keeping us from the greatest treasure of all. It could be good things. It could be things that we do within the church, the way we do ministry, right? The way we like to do our Bible studies, uh, the way, you know, we raise our families. I mean, we are treasuring all sorts of things that are taking the place of treasuring God. We must seek God first by making him our greatest treasure. So I, um, I was reading, while we were in Colorado, I was reading The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. I mean, it's a classic devotional. Uh, it's, it can be hard to read, but small chunks. So I, I can do hard to read in smaller chunks. And um, um, it's so rich. And I tell you what, I was reading a little bit about the biography of Tozer, and this was a man who, I mean, he, he was captivated by the presence of God. And I mean, he uh, had a heart that was so intent on pursuing God, and that just oozes in his writing. And so I just wanted to share a couple quotes from what I was reading in Pursuit of God. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now, by nature, no peace within their hearts. For God is crowned there no longer, but there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight amongst themselves for, for first place on the throne. On the throne. So this is talking about our heart, right? Things have taken over. Our hearts were created to be fully satisfied by God, but we've allowed other things to take over. Let's look at the next part of the quote. It goes on to say, the pronouns, these are dangerous pronouns, my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. There are verbal symbols of a deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us. A development never originally intended. God's gifts, this is what I want to focus on, God's gifts now take the place of God and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter one, God created all things, and he created humanity, put them in the garden to experience his presence. They, Adam and Eve, had God's presence at the fullest, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? They were supposed to extend the rule and reign of God with the things on this earth being a blessing as they enjoyed the presence of God, and sin entered the world and things were corrupted, God's gifts now took place of God. The things that they were supposed to receive as blessings, they became the place that, they became the things that took God's place. And we see that now in our own lives. As we're separated from God and, and as we strive to pursue God, things fill our hearts with God. That's terrible. That's what we do. So, uh, What's, what's the antidote? Well, I mean, there's a lot, but I mean, 
my and mine? Are we going to cling on to things and think we have ownership of things? Possessive? I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on, on these same verses, and he said that the key is to have the proper perspective as a pilgrim, right? We take, take root where we're at, and, and we acquire the things where we're at, but we need to see ourselves as pilgrims. We are not made where we're at. God is leading us on a journey towards him, and all the things are tools along the way. And if we would have this mentality of a pilgrim on a journey pursuing God, then it would be much easier to let go and let these things be used for God's glory instead of building our own kingdom rooted where we are at. So we pursue our greatest treasure. That's the first thing we see in these verses. Now in the next many verses, we're actually going to fly through them a little quicker. Um, we're going to see three great heart traps that we need to be aware of on the journey. Three great heart traps, okay? Because on every journey, there's obstacles. And when you come across an obstacle, one of two things can happen. You can either maneuver the obstacle and overcome that obstacle, or you can be, uh, you can be overcome by the obstacle itself. You have to be aware of the obstacle. We need to know what these heart traps are and how they affect us and how the adversary, how Satan himself is using these heart traps to pull our affections away from God. So before we realize it, we are not pursuing God, but we are pursuing things that steal what was meant for God in our hearts. So let us explore these three heart traps. The first one we're going to see in verse 22 through 23, and that heart trap is going to be taking your eye off the prize taking your eye off the prize. It says in these verses, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye is the lamp of the body. So scholars kind of debate what's going on here. There's a lot, I mean, it's a, it's a metaphor and... Um, there's a few things that are kind of thrown out, but uh, I think what's clear is this is saying that the eye is a window. The eye is a window, and where your eye goes is where your direction is, right? And, and then the window, there's a, there is a, um, there's a connection between your direction and your inner disposition with that eye being the window. So I think it, it means two things. It means that our direction determines our disposition, but I also think it, it, Jesus partly means our disposition will determine our direction. So what do I mean by those couple of things? Just a couple of examples. Um, you know, when I was in the army, uh, we had to, when we were doing training, we had to learn how to do the basic things without all the bells and whistles, all the fancy equipment. We had to do land navigation all the time. So they would drop us off in an area where there, was, we, there were points that we had to go find. They give us a map and a compass, and they taught us how to do a proper, uh, to, to use the compass and do a proper pace count to get to your destination, right? So you knew what you were supposed to pursue, and you had to uh, um, be in the right direction, the right amount of paces to pursue it. And they, what they would call it is checking your azimuth, right? So you would be going along the way. And so you'd start off and you're like, okay, this is what I'm pursuing. It's that exit sign. It is right there. I'm going straight towards there. But along the way, it's funny because you're, you're out in the woods and there's a lot of things to see in the woods. And there's a squirrel over here. You see that squirrel and you go a little bit this way, right? And then there's like a cool little stream over here and you're going over this way. Before you know it, 
you are nowhere near that exit sign. So you've got to constantly be checking your azimuth to get back on track. And I think this is what Jesus is telling us we need to do. We need to check our azimuth constantly. Because a lot of us are like, yep, I'm a Christian. I'm pursuing God. And we're not checking our azimuth. So we're like way over here when we think we're pursuing God and we're pursuing all sorts of the things that we've been talking about, right? Are you checking your azimuth? What does that look like in real life, right? Daily, regular time with God. And when we realize that, oh, I've been seeking this treasure, repent and recalibrate and get on the right course. That needs to be a regular thing because our flesh and our hearts and our minds are constantly pulling us off the track. Got pictures to show you from our trip to Colorado. It's a good picture. There you go. There's my boy Colby. Just turned five years old a couple of days. Doesn't he look proud? Isn't this a cool picture? I do think it's a cool picture. For metaphor purposes, I'm going to dog on him a little bit. But uh, um, he's so proud of himself here playing on these rocks, right? Now, there's a little inner pain when his brothers, Garrett and Nolan, and I see this picture. Because here's the deal. We, uh, we spoke to Colby that night and said, we're going to go on a big boy hike. We're going to climb up, and we're going to get to the top of this hill. Are you, are you going to come with us? Yeah, I'm going to come. And are you going to, be, are you going to work hard and you know, have energy to go all the way? You, yes, absolutely. I want to climb the mountain with you guys. All right, Colby, let's go. About five minutes into it, there's a pile of rocks over there. Colby, we can't go play on the pile of rocks. Colby's on the pile of rocks. A couple minutes later, there's a, ro- there's a tree limb over here. Colby, put that down. Get back on the trail. We are going up this mountain. He's like, it's okay. And he, from one pile of rocks to the next, we didn't even get a third of the way up that mountain because we kept on going from this pile of rocks, this pile of rocks, this pile of rocks. You know what? Pile of rocks are pretty cool. But they are nothing compared to getting to the summit of the mountain. I'll tell you what, guys. Your eye is a lamp to your body. Your eye is significant. If you keep getting pulled off course by a pile of rocks, you may think it's fun and enjoyable, but you're missing out and getting to the mountaintop. We are designed and created to be with God at the mountain type. And we're, we are stopping at piles of rocks all day, every day. If we're going to flourish in our lives, we need to pursue God. I should put blinders on Colby, guys. And, you know, we need to have those blinders too. We need to pursue God and not let those lesser treasures get in the way of the one true treasure that can truly satisfy. Heart trap number one, taking your eye off the prize. Don't do it. Heart trap number two, verse number 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So heart trap number two is slavery to bad treasure. Slavery to bad treasure or lesser treasure, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes we water things down by saying, well, see, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just a lesser treasure. But do you see the power of when we give ourselves to other treasures? I'm not going to dwell on this too long because our battleground series has been going deep into this. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the power of idols. This is what an idol is. When we seek treasure and something else um, that isn't God. A lot, of, a lot of y'all are like, hey, I'm good at multitasking. I'm a mom. I carry like five things at once, right? Uh, I can do that. I can have this treasure and still... Pers- no. Because who you treasure and what you treasure is your master. There's spiritual stuff going on behind the scenes. If you treasure something, you are giving yourself to it, and it is consuming you whether you realize it or not. 
It's a big deal. We make it think, like that cute picture of Colby on the rocks, we make it seem like it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, anybody have King James Version? Sometimes hard to read. That's good. But, you know, interestingly, they, they don't translate as God and money. God and mammon is what King James Version says. That's the actual, all right, so this is all translated to Greek. But for some reason, the Aramaic word mammon was left in Scripture. That was clearly intentional by the author. Why is that? Because God and, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a much bigger, all-encompassing word. Yes, money, but it's talking about wealth and everything that goes into this, these treasures that we seek, the power behind it, the influence that it has. A lot of speculation about what mammon really is getting at, but it's showing that, that there's something much bigger than just money, right? There, there's influences going on there that if we give ourselves to it, we let it be our treasure, whether we realize it or not, we've gone from serving God to serving these things that we're giving our, that we're treasuring. So the second heart trap was slavery to bad treasure. The third heart trap is the anxieties of life. The anxieties of life. Now, a lot of verses here, we're just going to fly through it. But um, first off, let's turn to chapter, or verse 25 through 34. We get the next slide there. So we're going to talk about the anxieties of life. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. I'm going to stop right there and point out that we need to make sure that we're not imposing like our own definitions on anxiety into what Jesus is saying. Tell you what, the emotional health crisis that's going on, it's a big deal right now. And there are lots and lots of layers to it. That's a whole different sermon. Lots of layers to it. Clinical anxiety is a thing. Jesus is not talking about anything. He's not saying that you are in sin if you've got some things going on where you need help, right? And uh, that's not what he's getting at here. Different conversation. Um, What is Jesus saying about anxiety? Let's see from this passage. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, that what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Some of y'all are hearing the, uh, everything I've been saying. You're like, Russ, I completely buy what you're saying about making God your treasure. But here's the deal. I got family to feed right now. Right? I've got, there is a, uh, a, a gas short, you know, I mean, inflation is through the roofs and everything costs more and housing costs more and there's a drought. I've got to put some things on hold so I can take care and provide livelihood. Jesus is going to say some strong and important things here. First off, is not, um, is not life more than food, Right? We're, we're looking at something much bigger picture. Let's keep going, though. And why are you anxious about clothing? Verse 28. 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Ouch. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? These illustrations from creation, right? God takes care of the birds, the fields, all that stuff. God loves us and values us more than all those. If God's taking care of them, he will take care of you. God knows what you need. Will you trust him? Look, there are real world things. I don't think this passage of scripture is minimizing that, and I'm not minimizing that, right? But sometimes when we're so anxious about the the day-to-day, the anxieties of life, they become our treasure, and they keep us from pursuing God. And if we would just pursue God, God wants to take care of us in ways beyond our imagination. This is hard to do. I've been in a spot, wait, I had to wait for a year before God led us to Houston Church where we were two kids in an apartment and I had no real job. And it is hard when the anxieties of life creep in. And I tell you, I don't think this means that, you know, that you are completely like without any concern. Because every night, my wife and I, we took, t- took turns freaking out. One night it would be me, oh my gosh, how are we gonna do this? And she's like, Calm, we, God's got, the, the next night she's sweating and freaking out. I'm like, you were just telling, look, con- it's okay to have concerns, but will you trust God? That's the thing. Last couple of verses there for the Gentiles seek after all these things. Verse 32. And your heavenly fathers know that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Gentiles seek these things, non-Christians, the, not the people of God is what this is getting at. If, for those people that are not kingdom citizens, not children of God, yeah, they are going to, to spend their lives pursuing all these things, but we have been called to something greater, to pursue God. And it's amazing how he takes care of his people. Will you trust him? Don't let the anxieties of life, political elections, the economy, the day-to-day, what college will I go to? What college will my kids go into? What, what, will I get that promotion? Don't let these things consume you. Yes, work hard. This is not saying don't work hard. This is saying seek God first. Make him his, your treasure no matter what. It's amazing how he brings those things like peace and joy and contentment and fulfillment when it seems like everything else may be crumbling around you, right? An illustration to kind of tie up some of these things we've been talking about today. I want to give a, I like to look for a real person type illustration. Really the best one I could find was from scripture itself, going back to the Old Testament. See, there was a man named Abraham Abraham was a pilgrim like none other, right? Abraham, I mean, Hebrews chapter 12, I mean, he is like, I mean, he is the man of faith. I'm going to flip there real fast. I mean, it's, what does it say about Abraham? It was so good. It said that, I'm not finding it first off, but man, he was held high because of his faith. Uh, he was in a land where he was comfortable, a far off land, and God says, get up, bring your family, and go. I'm not telling you where I'm sending you, just go. 
and he pursued God, he went. He left it all and he trusted God. And God said, I'm gonna give you all these good things. I'm gonna make you a father of many nations. I will give you a son. And he was faithful and he pursued God and he lived for God. He got really, really old. And so, you know, he kind of had this, this faith, uh, faith issue, he and his wife. And so they're like, well, yeah, I guess we'll take things into our ha- own hands right now. And so they did. And he had a child by different means. And no, God says, you're supposed to trust me. I'm going to give you a son. And he did at a really old age. And they had, <clears throat> Abraham and Sarah had this son. And I mean, you can imagine finally having their son, that they were, their life revolved around their son. There's a bunch of parents in this room. I know what y'all are talking about. I'm a parent. I mean, talk about the greatest gift that God can give you, your children, right? That Abraham was at a crossroads. God was going to use Abraham in an incredible way to be the father of faith. And so he needed to be broken of all things that all treasures that were taking the place of God himself in his heart. And so God did something I can't even imagine, right? Um, Chapter 22 of Genesis says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early and he took his son and he went just as God told him. We've read this story so many times. We get accustomed to it. But seriously, what are you holding on to? What do you cherish dearest apart from God? Will you hold them open like this? Abraham did. Abraham went up the mountain and he was standing over his son, ready to be completely faithful. God took him all the way to the brink and, he, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham and said, um, he said, uh, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and you've not withheld your, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring. He said, he called out to Abraham, he said, and Abraham said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Will you hold whatever, all the good things in life open-handed so that you can treasure God first and foremost? God wants you to flourish. I tell you what, I can't imagine if I were in Abraham's shoes. I know that this month is, um, I'm gonna butcher the name, but it's, it's like loss of a child bereavement month. I know that that has hit some of you directly. And for those that hadn't hit directly, I know you've been affected indirectly. How do you cope? How do you, how do you navigate something like that? Well, I know the first step is to, before you even get through such a crisis, to treasure God first. If we don't treasure God first and pursue God first and hold everything else open-handed, knowing that we never possessed in the first place, it will wreck us when, when the, the pain of life comes around, right? We hold everything with open hands and recognize we have blessings from the Lord, but our ultimate blessing and the ultimate thing he's given us is to be with him 
He's making all things new and all things right. And if we hold on in this earth, treasuring him most, he is bringing us to paradise to be with him completely. We have to pursue him now. We have to make him our greatest treasure. So what's God leading you to do this moment? As we're all on a journey, we're at different spots of the journey. Do you need to begin pursuing him? Do you need to let go? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Make him your treasure. It is so worth it. It is necessary. Jared's going to lead us in time of worship. We're going to have prayer counselors that are going to get up now, people available to pray with, and they're going to go to different spots around the room. Uh, if God, if, if this is a time where you want somebody to help lead you in prayer or to pray with you, please come up and be with one of these people. We'll have a pr- uh, prayer team member in the room across the way right there as well. So, I mean, after the service, there's an opportunity to pray. But this is a big deal and it begins with your heart. Let's set our hearts on a path directly towards him so we can be filled with it by him and may he be our greatest treasure let's go to him and worship